0: Day at the office? Backache from bending over a hot stove all day? Want to get away from it all?
1: We offer you escape!
0: It is midnight and you are alone. Suddenly the room is plunged into darkness. You sit frozen with terror because something is there behind you. Something you feared would come. Something from which you must escape.
1: Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure.
0: Tonight, we escape to London and a world made strange and terrifying by the workings of an ancient barbaric curse, as Montague R. James tells it in his weird story, Casting the Runes.
2: My name is Edward Dudding. I'm a scientist. I'm used to dealing with facts, not fairy tales. I'm regarded as Britain's leading authority on medieval life. And as such, I've studied much of the ancient fears and barbaric superstitions of those times. I should have been the first to scoff at any suggestion that the ancient powers of evil, the black magic of Teutonic days, could be believed and practiced in the 20th century. A few weeks ago, I should have laughed had you told me that a curse, a hex, could kill a man. Today, I cannot laugh. It has happened to a man I know of. And now, it's happening to me. My first presentment of danger came on that day a few weeks ago when I dropped in to see Alfred Smythe, secretary of the National Science Association, and found him in a state of irritation.
3: Last it all, Downing. I almost wish you hadn't been so brutally honest in your report on that Carswell paper. Why? What's the trouble? Oh, he's such a frightful fellow. He's raising a terrible row. You mean Carswell himself? Yes, it's bad enough a vicious charlatan like that calling himself a scientist. But now he's taking all his vindictiveness out on me.
2: <laughs> Sorry, old chap. It's really me he'd like to get at.
3: As a matter of fact, that's just what his last letter was about. He wants to know what supposed authority wrote the report rejecting his paper.
2: You didn't give him my name. Heavens, no.
3: As a matter of fact, Dunning, I haven't and I won't, and for a very special reason. Call it silly, call it crazy, call it what you will. I have an uncanny feeling about that man, Carswell. Hmm? Why? Do you know anything about him? Nothing. I've
2: never seen him. I only know that he wrote a paper called The Truth of Alchemy was hopeless. Precisely. And why was it hopeless? Well, besides being abominably written, it was supposed to prove that alchemy, black magic, and such rot actually exists. I think the man really
3: believes it. Undoubtedly, he does. And that's what I mean. He lives in an isolated old house in Warwickshire. He's rarely seen elsewhere. And in his whole career, he's written only two things. This paper and A History of Witchcraft, published 10 years ago. Yes, of course. I
2: remember now. So
3: that's the man. Yes, and that book was even worse than this paper. The man has a warped mind. I'm sure he's tried every unhealthy experiment in alchemy, witchcraft, and black magic. There's no telling to what lengths of vindictiveness a man like that might go.
1: Well, it does sound a bit queer, but...
3: Not queer, darling.
1: Evil.
2: Oh, come. Man has a right to believe what he likes. He has a right to be angry with me. Here I've glibly scoffed at the man's life's work.
3: Well, perhaps I'm being overly suspicious and imaginative, but... I think there's more than anger involved here, Edward. Mm -hmm. This may sound fantastic to you, but, well, John Harrington wrote the report condemning that witchcraft book of Carswell's ten years ago. Three months later, Harrington was dead.
2: Mm. But, Alfred, what's the connection?
3: Harrington died under very peculiar circumstances. He was walking home alone late one night, and suddenly he screamed, broke into a run, lost his hat and stick, and climbed up a tree. A dead branch gave way. He fell and broke his neck. No one's ever been able to explain why it happened. Come now, Alfred Jolly, you're not suggesting. Oh, I don't this... know what I'm suggesting. I only know that after he reviewed Carswell's book, John Harrington didn't have a moment's peace. Now you've written an unfavorable review of his, this paper. If I were you, I should keep that fact well hidden.
2: <laughs> Alfred, well, that's ridiculous. Why? <laughs> Yes, I laughed at Alfred Smythe's fears. How could I have known then that I was to feel the same terror, the same agonized fear which gripped the heart of John Harrington as he crouched, panting, on the branch of a tree for another moment or two of life, while beneath him the thing came closer and closer? (laughs) I'd almost forgotten the incident when, a few nights later, I was riding home on a late train. I was half-drowsing in my seat, barely keeping awake by looking idly at the car card at The man directly opposite me must have been doing the same, because suddenly I heard him say...
1: Here yeah, now, what can that one be advertising?
2: I followed his eyes to the window beside my head. What I saw brought me bolt upright in my seat.
1: In memory of John Arrington died September 18th, 1937 by falling from a tree. Three months were allowed. Mommy, what do you say that means, sir? I I don't know.
2: But I did know. Smythe had been right. The affair with Coswell was not over, but only begun. I asked the conductor about the card, but he was as puzzled as I was. He had never seen it before. The card must have been put there expressly for me. That meant that Carswell knew it was I who had reviewed his paper. How had he found out? I got the answer the next day. I was in the select manuscript department of the British Museum... doing some research in the quiet, almost deserted room. I'd been working steadily for an hour, oblivious to my surroundings... when suddenly, just at my shoulder, I heard a voice...
4: You are allowed three months.
2: I swung around at my seat. There was no one within 20 feet of me. I sat for a moment, shaken, and then I stooped to pick up the papers I had brushed to the floor. I straightened up to find a stout elderly gentleman standing in front of me.
4: Excuse me, sir. Uh, yes?
2: May I give you this paper? I think it should be yours. Oh, yes, so it is. I thought I had them all. This one seemed to have slide across the floor. Thank you very much. Not at all, sir.
4: Good afternoon.
2: He walked slowly away and out of the door. A kindly, stout old gentleman. But there was something about him that made me feel strange. I went over to the attendant.
3: Uh, Yes, Mr. Dunning? Uh, Did you
2: notice that gentleman I was just speaking to?
3: Oh, yes, of course.
2: Uh, Can you tell me his name?
3: Why, that's Mr. Carswell. As a matter of fact, he was asking about you only the other day. Asking about me? Well, he asked who were the great authorities on medieval science. And of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. Oh, I see. Uh, would you like to meet him, Mr. Dunning? I'll see if I uh, can... Uh, no. No, thank you.
2: It was as simple as that. Now Carswell knew what would be his next move. What was I to expect? I reached home at dusk, and trouble stood on my doorstep in the long face and stooped form of my family doctor.
5: I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. I've had to send both your servants to hospital. But what happened? Uh, Something like termine poisoning, I should think. It's nothing serious.
2: Well... What could have caused it?
5: Well, that's the rather odd thing. They tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker and headed for lunch. I've made inquiries, but I can't find that a hawker called at any other house on this street. Was this
2: the next move? If so, it had succeeded. I was alone in the house and my nervousness increased as darkness closed in and the hours advanced toward midnight. I went to bed. But almost immediately, I thought I heard something. My study door opening downstairs. I went out and leaned over the banister. There was nothing moving, nothing visible. There was only a sudden, surprising gust of warm air playing about my legs. I went back into my room and locked the door. Suddenly, the lights went out. No doubt it was only a blown fuse. But the chills were playing up and down my spine. I went over to the bed and reached for my watch under the pillow. I suppose I wanted to find out the time. I don't know why. But fumbling on the pillow, my hand touched something far different from a watch. It was like a mouth with sharp teeth and hair around it. Not human at all.
0: (laughs) I fled
2: from my bedroom and spent a long and miserable night locked in a spare room, my ear to the door. But nothing came. I was not disturbed again. In the morning, I searched the house and found nothing unusual. But the mark of fear must have been stamped on my face, for Smythe noticed it next day.
3: Darling, you look as if you hadn't slept for weeks. Is anything wrong?
2: I... I don't know, Alfred. I... uh, Yes, there is. Carswell knows. How? They told him at the museum. Of
3: course, we should have thought of that. Has anything happened yet? I don't know.
2: It's too fantastic. It's probably my mind, hypnotic suggestion or something. But like that man Harrington, I have three months left. Edward. must have been hearing things. I'm all on edge. I don't know what to think.
3: John Harrington had a brother, Henry. Perhaps I'd better get you in touch with him he might know more about this man, Carson. Yes, yes, do
2: it. And quickly. Three months is not a lot of time. It was arranged. That night, I found myself walking down the dark street that led from the railway station to the Harrington home. It must have been along this same street that John Harrington had walked that last night, where he had broke and run... It must have been one of these trees bordering the lonely road in which he had spent his last horrible moments. The way was dark, and there was no living soul in sight. And suddenly, complete terror gripped me. Somehow I knew that I was being followed. At first I only felt it, and then I heard it. I walked steadily on for a moment, my stomach like ice... It was getting louder, coming closer. Unconsciously, my step quickened. I could barely control myself. I wanted to scream and run. The thing came closer closer. I confess, I broke and ran. Ran madly for my life. I was at a little side street. I turned down the doubling back toward the railway station. I thought I would never make it. But finally, bright lights loomed before my eyes, and I think that I never have been so grateful for human
4: companionship. There's no need to run, sir. The eight won't be along for another
3: five
2: minutes. I felt very foolish. I couldn't bring myself to walk back down that street to Harrington's. I could only take the train home furtively and call Harrington next morning to beg his forgiveness. He seemed very understanding and asked no questions. Undoubtedly, Smythe had told him something about me. At any rate, he agreed to visit me at a place two nights later. And when he arrived and was made welcome,
5: he began to talk about his brother. Yes, Mr. Dunning. John was in a very bad state for weeks before the accident, Uh, if that's what it was. The principal thing seemed to be the notion that he was being followed. It became an obsession. Yes, I know.
2: I don't think his death was an accident.
5: Then perhaps you can explain it? No.
2: But I have one clue. Your brother reviewed a book very severely not long before he died. Uh, Just lately, I happened to cross the path of the man
5: who wrote that book. And his name, of course, is Carswell. That's right. As far as I'm concerned, that does it. Before he died, John was beginning to feel, much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. Why? Well, it doesn't make sense. None of this does. But tell me. My brother liked music. He went to all the concerts in town, and he made a hobby of collecting the programs. One night, about three months before his death, he brought one home and showed it to me. I nearly missed this one, he said. It seems he'd lost his and was hunting for it under his seat, when a neighbor, a rather stout elderly gentleman, offered to give John his.
2: The kind gentleman was Mr.
5: Coswell. Undoubtedly. I started to read through the program and noticed on the second page some rather curious letters, carefully written there in black and red ink. Neither of us could make much of it, except that the letters seemed to be runic.
2: Runes.
5: Runes, of course. Well, John thought it might be important and debated whether he shouldn't try to return the program to the stout gentleman. But just then the door blew open and a gust of air, of strangely warm air, blew into the room. In a flash, it took the program and blew it straight into the fire.
2: Yes, your brother was right. He should have returned it.
3: Well, there
5: was
2: nothing to be done then. Oh, perhaps not.
5: But do you know what runic letters mean? Well, they're old pre-Druid script, I believe. The kind of writing the barbaric tribes used long before the Romans invaded Britain. Yes, that's right.
2: Casting the runes, they used to call it in the old days. Casting the runes. Uh, What do you mean? Well, it was a curse, a a hex. In primitive England, people thought by casting the runes, that is, handing a person a piece of paper with certain runic letters on it that... uh, You could put that person out of the way, destroy him. It's an old superstition. And the only way to lift the curse was to return the paper to the one who gave it to you. To give it back without his knowing it.
5: I I don't believe that kind of nonsense. (laughs) Neither do I. Then what was it that killed John? I don't know. Perhaps his fear of the
2: runes. perhaps brooding about it, becoming neurotic, thinking he saw things and heard things and touched things it weren't there, perhaps his own mind drove him to death.
5: And what's the difference once you're dead?
2: No difference at all.
5: Casting the runes. Oh, it's rubbish.
2: Yes, of course, but... Good heavens. What is it? I just remembered that day at the British Museum. He cast the runes on me. I went swiftly to the writing table, Harrington close behind me. My portfolio was there, full of the scribbled notes I'd been working on that day in the museum. And as I took it from my shaking hands and began leaping desperately through them, one strip of thin, light paper slipped and fluttered toward the open window with uncanny quickness. But Harrington was even quicker and slammed the window shut just in time. Got it? Oh, thank
1: heavens.
5: If it were lost or destroyed like your brother's... Then you wouldn't be able to return it to Mr. Coswell. Yes, look at it. It's identical with the one John got.
2: I looked at the flimsy paper. The characters, carefully traced in red and black, were runes, all right. That ancient language used by the Aborigines of prehistoric Britain. I couldn't decipher them. But as Harrington and I stood looking into each other's eyes, each of us could read the other's thoughts. Science or not, 20th century or not, this sheet of foolscap spells death for its possessor.
5: It spells death.
2: For you. It must be returned. Yes, I know. It must go back in such a way that he doesn't... that he doesn't know he's received it. That means we can't simply mail it.
5: No, we can't. We must do it personally. That'll take doing. Well, he knows you by sight, doesn't he? Yes. You must shave your beard. It'll alter your appearance. He might strike any time. I have three months, as with the warning said. We've got to make good on this Dunning. I've searched ten years for my brother's murderer, and now he must not escape.
2: I dare not go near Carswell, so Harrington volunteered to keep a watch on him, to let me know when our chance came to return the runes, if it was ever to come. It was only a night or two after Harrington was there that I arrived home and found a calendar had come in the mail. When I examined it, I found everything after November 19th had been torn out. The next night, I had another envelope of the mail. This time it was a woodcut, an illustration torn out of a book, showing a dark, moonlit road and a man walking on it. And right behind him came a huge, dark shape, some awful demon creature, Under it were written some lines from the ancient mariner. And as I sat alone and read them aloud, I felt that now familiar gust of warm air playing about my legs. The man walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. I knew the face of my terror, and it was with me always. Walking down the dark street at night, I heard its footsteps behind me. In my lonely house at midnight, it roamed the halls. Like the ancient mariner and John Harrington, I never turned to look. I couldn't. My nerves were going, and I could do nothing but wait. The days, the weeks slipped by, and still Harrington had no plans. I checked off the days on the calendar Carswell had sent. Now there were eight days remaining, then six, then three, two, one. It was the evening of the 18th. My last day on earth was to begin at midnight. I was sitting alone in my living room, bathed in perspiration, fighting to keep my nerves in check. Suddenly I felt that warm gust of air... I listened. There were soft footsteps. A shadow seemed to cross the hall door. And then the footsteps blended into a loud banging.
3: No, no, not yet. I've still got one day more. Not yet. Sorry,
5: Dunning, it's me. Uh, oh, thank heaven. Harry. What's the matter, man? What is it? It was you, Hughie, you knocking on the door. Your footsteps? Yes, of course. Oh, thank heaven! I I thought I... Look, man, you've got to pull yourself together. It's tonight we have our chance. What chance? Carswell leaves Victoria Station by boat train tonight at 10. I'll get on with him there. You take the car I brought and drive to Croydon. Get on the train there and be sure to bring the paper. Yes, yes, I have it. You've shaved already. Good. Everything depends on his not recognizing you. This Harrington. Uh, s-
2: suppose he changes his mind. Suppose he doesn't take that trip. My time runs out tomorrow. He'll be there, and
5: you'll do it. You'll do it well. You've got to. I stood on the platform
2: of Croydon in my mind in a daze. I thought the train would never come, but it did. I saw Harrington at the window. He stared coolly at me. Of course, there was to be no sign of recognition. I entered the coach and slowly made my way down the aisle to the compartment where Harrington sat. Opposite him, staring full into my face, was Carswell. He looked up as I sat down. His eyes were heavy-lidded, his face bland. It was impossible to tell whether he knew. The train started. The next stop was Dover, the end of the line. My last chance. It was time to cast the rules. Strange Coswell and I seated face to face, staring into each other's eyes. Harrington off to the side, pulling at his face and twitching fingers. If I could have only had a few whispered moments with him to plan our strategy. But that was impossible. The moment's dragged tortuously. No one moved. Then suddenly Coswell leaned forward. I beg your pardon, sir.
1: Haven't we met? Uh, met? Well, I don't think so, sir. Not unless you're in the plumbing business. Plumbing?
2: No. Hardly. I hadn't planned it that way. The words, the accent, just seemed to come by themselves. And Carswell sat back, an enigmatic expression on his face. I wished desperately to know what he was thinking. Then suddenly he got up and went out into the corridor. Was this my chance? I was about to slip over to his bags to see if there were a way to secrete the rooms within them, when I caught Harrington's eye and read a warning. Carswell from the corridor was watching, waiting to see if we recognized each other. I muttered a prayer of thanks I hadn't moved. Carswell came back and took his seat. As he did so, wild, exultant hope surged up in my throat, for something slipped off his seat and dropped noiselessly to the floor. It was his ticket case, and he didn't see it. It was a small cardboard ticket case with a pocket on the cover if I could just get to it and slip that tiny piece of paper into that pocket. For 15 agonizing minutes, I sat there and stared at it. If only Coswell would go out, but he sat stolidly staring straight ahead. We were coming into the outskirts of Dover, the train slowing down. Suddenly, Harrington stood up, reached up to the rack above Coswell to get his coat and bag. I stared at him blankly for a moment, surprised by his sudden clumsiness. And then I realized what he was up to. The bag, the coat, a briefcase, all came tumbling down upon Coswell.
5: What the devil? Oh, I say I'm sorry. I'm
2: terribly sorry. Clumsy fool, you might have injured me. What were you trying to do? It it was my only chance. Coswell stood facing Madden. I I reached down, got the ticket case, and with trembling fingers slid
3: the paper into the pocket. He turned sharply to me, and I extended the case toward him.
5: Uh,
2: Excuse me, sir. Is this yours? Yes, it's my ticket case. Where'd you find it? Here on the floor must have dropped off when this i'm much obliged to you sir not at all not at all he looked at me fiercely his rage at harrington still twisting his face into a devil's mask then he glanced briefly into the ticket case and put it into his pocket Here at Dover, Harrington and I followed a few steps behind Carswell. I felt like I might faint. Carswell went straight to the gangway of the boat, and there the purser Excuse stopped me, him.
1: Give sir, does your friend have a ticket? My friend, what the devil do you mean? I'm traveling alone. Well, that's funny. I could have sworn there was another gentleman right there beside you, walking just at your elbow. Well, there isn't, and I suggest you see an oculist. Oh, I, I didn't see. I just felt... Sorry, sir. must have been your rugs. My mistake.
5: Come undone. Our job's
2: done. I didn't sleep that night. I lay awake and listened. But there were no footsteps. No warm gusts of air. Nothing to disturb me. All day I felt remarkably free. Although this was to have been my last day on earth. But only just now, when Harrington came in, could I really relax.
5: Well, oh, Jennings, have you seen the afternoon paper yet? I know. Not yet. Well, here. Look at it. On the second page. There.
2: Abbeville, France. An English traveler examining the front of St. Wolfram's Cathedral today was struck on the head and killed instantly by a stone falling from a scaffolding. A note of mystery was added by the fact that although the cathedral was undergoing repairs, no workman was on the scaffolding at the time of the accident. The traveler was identified by papers found on him as a Mr. Carswell of Warwickshire.
5: Uh, of course, it could have been an accident.
2: Yes. Yes, it could have been.
1: is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And tonight brought you Casting the Runes by Montague R. James. Adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch and John Dunkel, with John McIntyre as Edward Dunning, Ian Wolfe as Harrington, and Bill Conrad as Coswell. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr.
0: Next week... You are trapped in a hidden valley, high in the Andes. Walled in by sheer rock precipices. And surrounding you, closing in on you, is a band of blind men who want your eyes.
1: Next week, we escape with H.G. Wells' gripping story, The Country of the Blind. Good night, then, until this same time next week when we again offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
5: We'll return to Escape Theater right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show.
0: burned up at the high price of turkeys? Can't get eggs for your pumpkin pie? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. You're trapped in a remote valley of the Andes, walled in by sheer rock precipices. And surrounding you, closing in on you is a band of blind men who want your eyes. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to the high mountains of Ecuador and to a remarkable world Where sight is unknown, as H.G. Wells imagined it in his curious story, The Country of the Blind.
4: My name is Ibarra. I am a mining engineer in Quito, Ecuador, high in the towering Andes. And up until a year ago, my chief sport was mountain climbing. My last climb was an attempt to scale the remote and forbidding peak of Parascotapetl, a 20,000 foot crag, unconquered by man. It is unconquered still, 3,000 feet from the icy summit, our party turned back and fled for their lives. All of us escaped except one, a guide named Nunez, who slipped and fell over the precipice, disappearing into the vast chasm that yawned 10,000 feet beneath us. The horror of that man's fall has haunted my dreams for a year. Because of it, I have forsaken mountain climbing for the rest of my life. And that decision still stands. Even though, today, I have seen Nunez. He was sitting on the steps of my shack when I arrived at the mine this morning. At first, I didn't recognize him. He was so much changed. I thought he was a ragged beggar asking alms. Is is it you, Senor Ibarra? My name is Ibarra, yes. What do you want? You do not know me, Senor. I know. I... You look like a man I knew once, but he is... Dead? Dead on the slopes of Paris Petal, Nunes.
6: No, it couldn't be you. Nunes. That is my name, senor. At least that is the name I remember. But you fell. I saw you fall. Yes. It's impossible that you could have lived. Perhaps the gods of the mountain had some reason to spare me.
4: Nunes, if we'd had any idea that you were alive, but you went down, down thousands of feet, we couldn't even attempt to find your body. I
6: know I do not blame you. You could not have reached me. And if you had, I... I should not have welcomed you at first. But then later... What do you mean, Nunes?
4: Senor, you will not believe what I have to tell. I can hardly believe that I'm seeing you, talking to you. But what has happened to you? You remember that night, the night I fell?
6: Yes. We had been toiling all day, inching our way up a steep ice wall. And as darkness came, we found a narrow ledge, barely three feet wide.
4: It's not very wide, but we can get our shoulder wall up cut off some of this wind. Hell, that'll be welcome. Yes, but... First, we'll rest a moment. Look at that icy devil up there glistening in the moonlight. There's another 3,000 feet of sheer ice wall to the top. Well, I can see why no one's ever made it. Think we should go on? I don't know. Nunes, what do you think? It is not my place to say,
6: senor. I was hired to guide you to the top. I agreed. What do you really think? If I believed in the gods of the mountain, as the Indians do... I should be frightened now. Why? Because we have invaded the Forbidden Circle. This part of the Andes is unmapped and unknown, senor. And therefore shrouded in superstition, eh? It is an easy thing
4: to believe strange things in this white loneliness. Some of the legends are really fascinating. I've heard of one, something about a hidden valley called the Country of the Blind. Yes. It is supposed to be somewhere down there below us.
6: A fertile valley which was settled many centuries ago and then cut off by the great landslide of Araka. But why the country of the blind? Well, even before it was isolated, the people developed a strange illness. All of them slowly went blind. After that, their children were born blind. And the legend is that the valley was the home of the mountain gods. It was too beautiful for human eyes. That's odd. Well, that's all nonsense. Yes,
4: of course. Would be pleasant to find it, though. You know, the old proverb, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king?
6: I doubt that we could ever find it. I even doubt if it exists. Of course not. I was only joking. Yes. Well, now if you're arrested, we'll make the shelter wall.
4: Right. I'll give you a hand in a minute. Believe me, it for two pesos I'd give up this climb. I never realized that. Senors, I'm slipping! Hang on! Nunet!
7: Nunes!
6: In one horrible instant, my foot had slipped on the treacherous ledge and I'd gone over, falling far out into the icy black night, falling down, down. I fell perhaps a thousand feet. Then I felt a heavy stinging impact of snow. I'd fallen on an almost perpendicular snow slope. And now I was sliding, down, down, tumbling over and over. And then suddenly I realized that my own motion had almost stopped. And it was the snow that was moving. I was riding an avalanche. At almost the same moment I went over the second precipice. It was higher than the first, much higher, perhaps 4,000 feet. I fell with the snow for what seemed minutes, every second expecting the terrible final impact. But the impact never came. Miracle of miracles, that sheer wall blended almost imperceptibly into another steep snow slope. And again I was sliding. Gradually, as the arc of the slope curved away, I felt myself slow down. And finally I rolled to a stop and lay still. When I awoke, it was morning, and I was covered with snow... I shook off the cold white blanket on my chest and rested a moment. And then I rolled over on my back and looked up. My heart almost stopped as I saw from where I'd fallen, where the mountain towered 10,000 feet above me. Then carefully I felt at myself. My clothes were torn. I, I was bruised and bleeding. I, I ached in every muscle, but... I had not a single broken bone. I lay there and offered up a prayer to the gods of the mountain. Far below me lay a lush valley sparkling in the morning sunlight. I could see the stately trees and the green meadows fresh with dew. I started down the mountain, but it was still an arduous descent. The farther down I got, the more I realized the beauty of the scene. Why, this was a hidden paradise I'd fallen into. And I was the first man ever to see it. So I thought. But I was wrong. I realized that first when I saw the cultivation in the meadows. And then the walks, well-kept stone walks laid in a symmetrical pattern all over the valley. And then I saw them. There were men and women lying under the trees and resting in the fields. Nearby a collection of windowless huts marked a village and the plastering of the houses was done in a wild variety of colors. I thought to myself, (laughs) the plasterer who did that must have been blind as a bat. Then I saw two of the men quite close to me. They were standing on a bridge over the little stream. They were dressed in odd loose clothing and there was a strange look about their faces. They failed to notice me as I approached until I shouted. Suddenly they looked up attentively in my direction. I waved wildly at them, but they took no notice. Why, the fools must be blind. Blind? Could it be that I have fallen into the country of the blind? Hmm. In the country of the blind, a one-eyed man can be king. <laughs> Hello there. You needn't be afraid. I I won't hurt you. I come in peace.
4: It is a man or a spirit come down from the rocks.
6: Oh, I'm a man, all right. Just like you, but I've had a miraculous escape, and now I find myself here in your valley. Valley? Valley? Come hither. Let me feel of you. Yes, certainly. Here, my, my arm is my face. You see, I am a man, I, like yourself. Here, feel my lips. They move with speech. Oh, careful there, gently. Those are my eyes. Eyes.
4: Eyes. That is strange. Feel this
8: career. Yes, I feel. Careful. Feel the eyelids flutter? He is but imperfectly formed. Some strange bulge there. Unseemly. No, no, you see... Your eyes are shrunken in, but mine are whole. I can see. See? Pedro, he is a strange, wild one. Where does he come from? He must have come down out of the rocks.
6: No, from over the mountains, out of the country, beyond there, where men can see. From Bogota, where there are a hundred thousand people and a city
8: stretches out of sight. Sight? What strange words he uses, without meaning. And feel the coarseness of his hair. Like a llama's.
4: Our fathers have told us men may be made by forces of nature. It is the warmth of things, and moisture, and rottenness.
8: Let us lead him to the elders. But no one need lead me. I can see. See? Oh,
6: yes, of course. I can. I. I didn't see
8: your water bucket. His senses are still imperfect. He stumbles and talks unmeaning words. Lead him by the hand, Pedro. But look, I...
6: (laughs) Oh, well, all right. These people had been blind for centuries. They had forgotten even the words associated with seeing. And they thought I was an idiot, only half-formed. Especially when they led me into the pitch blackness of one of their windowless huts. And I stumbled (laughs) over someone.
4: A thousand pardons, Madonna Sirota. He is a clumsy one.
6: I, I'm sorry I fell down. I, I couldn't
8: see in the darkness.
9: Who is this? And
8: what is he saying? He is but newly formed, good father. He has come down from the rocks. He stumbles as he walks and mingles words that mean nothing with his speech. He is a wild man out of the rocks. No, I come from Bogota, over the mountains. You
4: hear? Bogota. He uses wild words... His mind is hardly formed. He has only the beginnings of
9: speech. <laughs> Bogota? <laughs> yes.
6: I, I come from the great world where men have eyes and see.
4: That must be his name, Bogota.
8: He stumbled twice as we came thither. He must be taught. No, you, you don't understand. I can see,
6: but not in the dark. To you, darkness or light is all the same, but to me, to, to us who can see... To us outside in the world, beyond the mountains...
9: Mountains? What are mountains?
6: Very well, then, beyond the
9: rocks. (laughs) There is nothing beyond the rocks. That is the end of the world.
6: Oh, but surely you must realize the the sky above covers more than
9: just this valley. Sky? Above? Above? There is nothing above but the roof of rock. He is very raw, my children. He shall have to be taught from the beginnings. Uh, Now take him away. Uh, Feed him.
4: It shall be done, good Uh,
9: father. But guide him. See that he does not stumble over my daughter again.
7: Do not fear, father. I shall guide him myself and feed him. Very well. Come, take my hand.
6: Thank you. It, it'll be a pleasure to get outside again, out of this darkness.
7: Come this way.
6: Yes. What is your name?
7: Medana Sarote.
6: Mine is Juan. Juan Nunez. Oh, oh, sunlight. Oh, this is better. And now I may look at you. Why? You're beautiful. I cannot tell you what a wonderful thing you are to see.
7: please. You must be careful. Why? If you do not learn quickly and cease speaking such strange words, they may not be so kind to you. They might be angry. They might even destroy you.
6: This thought had not occurred to me, and suddenly I had a twinge of fear. Still, the proverb kept running through my mind. In the country of the blind, a one-eyed man is king. But try as I would, I could not make them understand my wonderful gift of sight. They thought me stupid and untaught, almost an idiot. Day by day, I learned their peaceful ways, but they could not learn mine. It was beginning to get on my nerves. There's two, perhaps.
8: Bogota? Bogota, come hither. Bogota, you move not.
6: No, and I won't, you old beetle. I'll show you. I'll leave the path. Bogota,
8: trample not on the grass. It is not allowed.
6: How did you know I stepped on the grass?
8: I heard, of course.
6: Heard, but I didn't make a sound.
8: Why do you not come when I call you? Can you not hear the path as you walk?
6: I can see it.
8: There is no such word as see. Cease this folly and follow the sound of my feet. Oh,
6: my time will come.
8: You will learn. There is much to learn in the world.
6: Has no one ever told you in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king?
8: Blind? What is blind? Oh, never mind. Bogota, I must warn you. Just keep quiet and learn. And stop this nonsense about seeing. Nonsense, is
6: it? I'll show you I've taken enough of your insults. Unformed mind. Got no sense yet. I'll be king here. I can see and I'll be king. Bogota, stop it. No, I'm through with your orders. I'll show you what an advantage sight can be. I can hit you and hurt you, and you can't see me to strike back.
8: Bogota, put down that spade. You
6: devil, your ears are sharp, aren't they?
8: Bogota, there must be no violence.
6: By heaven, I'll hit you if you come any
8: closer. I swear I will. Put down that spade and come off the grass.
6: You don't understand. You are blind, and I can see. I can see. Bogota. I'll hurt you.
8: I swear I will. Put down that spade. Leave me alone!
6: I hit him with a spade and ran. Over the wall, outside the valley, back to the rocks, back to the cliff I'd come from. When I reached that sheer rock wall, I knew there was no place to go. For two days and nights, I stayed outside the valley. I grew hungry and cold. Then I realized the hopelessness of my position. I was trapped. I must spend the rest of my life here. There was no way out. So I went back.) confess, O oh chief of the elders, I was mad. I admit, I was only newly made.
9: That is better. And uh, do you still think you can uh, see?
6: No, no, no. That was folly. The words mean nothing less than nothing.
9: And what is overhead?
6: Rock. There's a roof above the world, a roof of rock and very smooth. Very well.
9: And, uh,
6: Please, before you ask me any more... Give me food or I shall die.
9: Very well, give him food. Uh, Medina Sarade. Yes, Father. And after that, we must put him to the most menial tasks in the village. Guard him well. And perhaps... <laughs> perhaps he shall learn yet. Thank you. Thank you.
6: Oh, that is better. You are kind, Medina Sorote. Very kind.
7: I am glad you came back.
6: You are? If they were all like you, I should never have run away.
7: What was that word you said I was?
6: Beautiful. You are. Well, even your eyes, they're not shrunken depressions like the others.
7: It means something nice, beautiful?
6: Something very nice, Medina Sorote. Tell me, why is it you have no husband?
7: I, I have a disfigurement. These long hairs.
6: Oh, your eyelashes? Oh, but they're beautiful.
7: They are considered a disfigurement.
6: You're the most lovely girl in the valley. But they wouldn't know, would they? You... You have no lover? No. A Sorote, what do you think of me? Do you think of me as an idiot like all the rest do? Oh,
7: no. No, you have much to learn, but you will learn it, I'm sure. And you are kind and gentle, and your voice is soft. You speak words that are soft and warm. No one has ever spoken such words to me.
6: Then I shall speak them often, Madinus Cerotti. You are the only one in this valley, in this whole world I care for. And so it began. I, the village idiot, the slave boy who dreamed to be king, I, with my eyes still whole, fell in love with Medina Sorote, the daughter of the elder of the village. Only to her could I open my heart without fear. Only to her could I speak of the beauty I could see around me. Oh, it is a beautiful valley, Medina Sorote green with grass and yellow with sunlight and flowers bright flowers dotting the hills and in the cool of the night the stars gleam like diamonds in the sky
7: the words sound lovely but what are stars
6: stars why no you wouldn't understand
7: and what do you mean in the cool of the night you still get that confused one. The night is warm. The day is cool.
6: Oh, no, it is you here who have them backwards. Because the darkness means nothing to you. You work in the cool of the night and sleep in the heat of the day, but...
7: You are uh, teasing me.
6: No. Oh. <laughs> what does it matter? All that matters is you. You, you. Here beside me, Medina Sorote. I love you.
7: And I love you.
6: I... I know they still think me an idiot, but you listen to what I say, and you don't think me an idiot, do you?
7: Oh, no. I like to hear you speak.
6: Then will you... Would you marry me?
7: Yes. Yes, Juan. I will marry you. have it. But, Father... He is an idiot.
9: He has delusions. He cannot do anything right.
7: But he is getting better. He's better than he was. And he is strong and kind. Stronger and kinder than anyone in the world. And he loves me. And I love him.
9: No, I will not have it. Uh, Great, sire. If you please. What is it, good doctor? I have examined Bogota, and the case is clear to me. I think very probably... He might be cured. Uh Huh? And uh, how might that be done? His brain is affected by something. I I believe I know what it is. Those queer things he calls eyes, Hmm? where we have but an agreeable depression, he has great lumps uh, with flaps over them that move and long hairs. Consequently, his brain is in a constant state of irritation. But what can be done to cure him? A very simple surgical operation. Remove the cause of the irritation. We will merely cut out his eyes.
7: But, Juan, they say it will make you well. It will make you look like us.
6: But you don't understand, Medina Cerute. My world is sight. You would not want me to lose my most precious possession. I don't know. There are so many beautiful things to see. The flowers, the far sky with its drifting clouds, the sunsets, the stars. And you? If only just to see you it is good to have sight. And I would never see you again.
7: Juan, I love to hear you say these things even though I know it is just your imagination.
6: But, my dear, these things are real.
7: No, they are fancies. This is real. If you will let them cut out your eyes, we can be together always.
6: Then you want me to?
7: Oh, if you would. If only you would.
6: What else can I do?
7: My dearest one. My dearest with a tender voice. I will repay you. Oh, Madonna. Be brave. And carry my voice in your thoughts. Now I must go. And tomorrow. Yes. Tomorrow will be forever.
2: Goodbye.
6: Goodbye, Madonna. I suppose I knew it then, when I said that. I only meant to go up on the rocks and look out over the valley, to spend my last days feasting my eyes, my precious eyes, on the wonderful, beautiful world of light and color. But when I got there, it was too beautiful, too lovely, this valley, this home of the mountain gods. Beautiful and forbidden. I drank it in. The green of the fields, the blue of the gently curving stream, the orange of the lichen in the rocky crevices. I climbed higher to see the great snow-capped peaks towering above and away to the distant sky, and still higher as the shadows turned the snow to purple and crimson and deep blue. The valley now was far below, and as beautiful as a painting. But like a painting, it seemed unreal. Medina Sorote was small and far away, a distant dream. And the world of sight was here, all around, overpowering, wonderful. I turned and began to climb up that sheer rock wall. How many months it took me to make my way out over those mountains over glaciers and snowfields and sheer precipices. I cannot guess how I lived through the cold and hunger of it. I cannot tell you. But I'm here at last, back from the country of the
4: blind. Good heavens, man. What an experience. Yes. Terrible and wonderful. You aren't sorry you came back. Sorry.
6: <laughs> I see her face clearly now. It is the only thing
4: I see. Nunez come, you need food. Here take my hand. Thank you. Where is it?
6: Senor Ibarra? Nunez yes. The gods of the mountain have had their revenge. Those months of crawling over the snow and ice with the sun glaring down. Yes, I am blind.
2: Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson and tonight presented The Country of the Blind by H.G. Wells, adapted for radio by John Dunkel, with Paul Fries as Nunez, Peggy Weber as Medina Sorote, Bill Conrad as Ibarra and Harry Bartel as Correa. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fewer.
0: (laughs) Next week, When you're tired from a hard day at the office or your back aches from bending over a hot stove, next week at the same time, when you want to get away from it all, we offer you escape.
2: This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.